Well, if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we are continuing our series called Your Ministry in the Church, where we learn what is involved in ministering, serving in the body of Christ on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, serving as he has told us that we ought to serve. So we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3 because the subject that we're looking at this morning is ministry with a high view of Scripture. Ministry with a high view of Scripture. Or we could say, I suppose, a biblical view of Scripture because the Bible has a very high view of itself, and rightly so. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Paul writing to Timothy says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Last time we were here, we looked at the uh, purposes of the church and the goals that we're trying to accomplish. Namely, that we as disciples of Christ and as the church of Christ are trying to carry out the goals of discipleship, uh, spiritual transformation, worship, and love. These are the end goals of ministry according to the scripture if you want to summarize them and categorize them in a particular way. But as you know, just because you have a goal, it doesn't mean that you can simply set out to accomplish this goal however you want. If you were trying to build a house, you couldn't simply go and to build a house whichever way you wanted without respect to principles of engineering, without respect to understanding how things work and how they stand, without paying attention to certain mathematical calculations, uh, without paying attention to the strength of materials involved or certain layouts. You also couldn't ignore the laws of that particular town or city or county which give requirements for certain types of codes that you're supposed to follow. In other words, just because you have a vision in mind of what you want something to look like at the end, it doesn't mean that you can get there however you want. And this, of course, is true in all kinds of situations and circumstances in our lives. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to accomplishing the goals that the Bible lays out, people seem to forget that there are certain ways you have to go about doing things. That it's not okay to simply say, we want to encourage worship of God and then go about whatever we want to do to bring that about. Or that we want to make disciples of Christ, but it really doesn't matter how we make them as long as we make them. We can just do this our own way. We can do this however we want to because, after all, these are such significant eternal goals that basically, unless there's something really egregious, the ends justify the means. This noble goal, people seem to think, makes it okay to do things kind of however we want as long as we get there. And little thought and attention is sometimes given to the way that the Bible says we are to go about trying to accomplish the goals that the Bible lays out. 
We have principles and rules just like in construction, just like in any kind of game or sport, just like in any kind of legal matter. There are principles and rules that we must follow if we are going to do things God's way in trying to accomplish his goals. And we want to look at several of these. Now, if you're familiar with what our church has laid out in terms of sort of official documents. We call this, we refer to this as our philosophy of ministry. And there are seven of these key pillars that we want to go over over the next several weeks to talk about the underlying principles and the directing principles that guide us as we try to minister both individually and as a church. If we're looking to serve Jesus Christ, then we want to know how to do this, and we want to just go through these principles. And the first one of these that we're going to look at has to do with the way that we view the Bible. Because, as we will see, faithful ministry in the church requires a proper view of God's written word. It's very simple, isn't it? Faithful ministry within the church requires a proper view of God's written word. And so what I want to do this morning is to show you how you should view the Bible and in particular with an eye toward how it is to be regarded in ministry, in serving Jesus Christ, in serving on behalf of Jesus Christ. How do we think about the Bible in light of that? So I want to show you how you should view the Bible according to the Bible and then to show you several ways Uh, or several things that this means for how you should use it in ministry. Just some uh, practical directives for what this means for us, both corporately as a church and then individually. So not only will we have here a theoretical view of the Bible, but also then just some practical outworkings from that. Now, both of these things, how you should view the Bible and how you should use it, are going to have a lot of relatively short and straightforward points. So we're going to move pretty quickly through these. So just have your pen ready and don't be surprised if you see a lot of points coming up here. All right, let's start with this. How you should view the Bible. How you should view the Bible. And first and foremost, we need to understand that it is inspired. This verse here, 2 Timothy 3.16, tells us this. All scripture is inspired by God. Some of your versions may even render this as breathed out by God, which indicates that this is a message that comes from God himself. This is God's own voice. It's his own words. It is what comes out of the mouth of God. Inspiration can be a confusing word sometimes. It's helpful to think about what it doesn't mean. Inspiration of the Bible does not mean that the biblical writers got really inspired and pumped up, you know, and they just decided, man, you know, this is my life's calling. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write, I'm going to write a really good book today. Here is the book of Romans. I'm, I, this is what I've been building toward and I am just really, really, I'm just inspired. I've got my coffee going, you know, I've got my writing place and I'm ready to just write this down. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that they took the initiative all on their own to do this. This is not talking about inspiration in the sense that an artist might be inspired to make a great work of art in some way. Instead, this is talking about something different. If, in fact, turn over with me to 2 Peter, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter talks about the nature of Scripture and the way that God used the biblical writers to bring about what he wanted to have written down. Second Peter 
chapter 1, and verse 20 and 21, it says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, people sometimes get confused with this and they say, oh, this is not a matter of one's own interpretation, meaning that basically we shouldn't interpret it or the scripture itself is not something that we can go to ourselves and interpret it. No, that's not what this is referring to at all. What he's saying here is the prophecy of scripture, the content of the Bible is not that the authors looked around them and said, here's how I interpret things. Here's how I interpret the world. Here's how I interpret the circumstances that I'm seeing or what I think is going to happen in the future. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. You see, this is not man's own ideas about the world because it wasn't man's idea to write this stuff down in the first place. Whose idea was it? Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now clearly, these men did, in fact, write. God didn't take over their bodies so that they unconsciously were sitting there as just these kind of puppets that had no idea what they were doing. And they spoke, it says. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke. So again, they wrote and they spoke. They really said those words. They really knew what they were saying. They were involved. They had agency. But this wasn't their idea and it wasn't their viewpoint as man apart from exactly what God wanted it to say. So verse 21 says, men moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit overseeing the process. These men spoke from where? From God. Not from their own will, not from their own interpretation, but from God. And therefore, everything that ended up on the pages of Scripture was exactly what God wanted to end up on the pages of Scripture. He used human authors. He used human agency. He, in fact, even used the distinct personalities and experiences and knowledge and writing styles of the various authors. But nonetheless, he made sure that everything that got on the pages of Scripture was exactly what he wanted to say. In fact, this is so true that even the authors themselves didn't always understand the end point of what God was getting at when he gave the words that they themselves wrote or spoke. So if you flip back to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll find this, 1 Peter chapter 1, back a book from 2 Peter, 1 Peter 1 verse 10 As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that is Old Testament prophets speaking about the gospel that would come in Jesus Christ. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This is an incredible thing. The biblical authors are writing down words and they're turning around and looking at it and saying, what did I mean by this? Not that they didn't understand the grammar, not that they didn't understand the immediate point that they were making, but when it came to when would Jesus come? 
who is this person going to be? They didn't know that his name would be Jesus. When they're, when they're trying to pull all the pieces together and interpret it, they also didn't know all that God was getting at. This is how much God was the one directing all these things and arranging. This author says this, this author says this, and they mean to say what they say, but God is pulling all these things together. He is overseeing the whole thing. You say, how do we know that? Because verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through, the, through uh, to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So they realized in serving these, in writing these things and then studying them that the Christ was going to come at some point in the future, not during their own time. That was revealed to them. So here is God using human authors to write down exactly what he wants us to have. And so 2 Timothy 3 says all scripture is inspired by God. What then is the extent of this inspiration? This is a question that people sometimes bring to the Bible. How much of this is inspired? What does it say in verse 16? All scripture is inspired by God. Not just the New Testament. Not just the words of Jesus. Not just the Gospels. Not just the Old Testament. Not just the Old Testament beginning at Genesis chapter 12. Not just the religious principles over against the historical accounts. The entire thing. This is what we call full verbal inspiration. Full verbal inspiration. The entire thing down to the very words. Not just the general thoughts, but the words themselves. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, in fact, that not even a jot or a tittle, the smallest part of a letter, will pass away until all is accomplished. And so what we have then in Scripture is the very voice of God himself. It's really unfortunate. A lot of times people look at the Bible and they say, you know, this is just, it's just words on a page. I mean, I know it's from God. I get that. But it's just words on a page. You know, I need something more alive. I need something more lively. They might even set that against the spirit of God. Now, I don't know about you, but did you notice the Spirit of God at work in putting the Bible down? 2 Peter chapter 1 and in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Spirit carried them along. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So what is at work? Who is at work in the pages of Scripture speaking? It is the Spirit of God. Nonetheless, people think that these are just words. And to give attention to these words is somehow to miss out on a relationship. These are words from long ago. These don't speak to me. And yet the Bible says very clearly these are exactly what God wants all of us to know. And they are God's words himself and the Holy Spirit is at work and they tell us about Christ. This is how we have a relationship with God. With God the Father, with God the Son, with God the Spirit. By paying attention to his very voice. And his words don't become invalidated simply because it's been a while since he wrote this. If someone were to write to you a letter and you didn't get it until a month later... It could still be very important to you and still be very much something that is part of your relationship. So the difference is really just a matter of extent, not a matter of principle. God wrote these things long ago, but they still very much are the way that we relate to him. So here we have the inspired scripture that has been brought to us. <clears throat> they are the very words of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 
For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. Now, let's take that to the logical next step. If all scripture is God's word, if God spoke all of scripture, what does that mean about the nature of scripture? It is then inerrant and infallible. It is inerrant and infallible. So inerrant means that it does not err in any point at all. Let's think about this. If God knows all things and God spoke the Bible, then we can put together some pieces. Look over if you're in 2 Timothy 3, look at the very next page or the next book, Titus chapter 1. And it says there in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot what? Lie. He cannot lie. Promised long ages ago. Since God knows all things, if he's going to make a mistake, it has to be deceit. It has to be a lie. And God is unable to lie. Therefore, everything he says is absolute truth. Which means if the Bible is inspired, it also must be, must be without error. Meaning that there are no factual errors. And this is true not only in matters of spiritual truth, as if you can divide them up, but in matters of historical and scientific statements. Anything that the Bible asserts to be true is true because it is the word of God. So it is absolutely true in every way. This is the case such that Jesus summarizes it in this familiar passage, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. What? Your word is truth. This is just the nature of it. Your word is truth. It is completely true and without error of any kind, except for, of course, the errors that biblical characters make throughout the course of the biblical accounts. But we know all about that already. Uh, it is inerrant. It is also then infallible. Infallible, slightly distinct from the idea of inerrancy, meaning that it is entirely dependable. It's trustworthy. It won't fail you. It won't mislead you. Every word of the Bible will come to pass. All the promises will come to pass. All will be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so the Bible will not let us down. Everything that God promises for us that he will do, he will do. Everything that has not yet come to pass is going to come to pass. Our Bible is not only inerrant, but it is infallible. It will never, never mislead us. And we can rely upon it completely. Now, so far so good. Because to this point, you will rarely find someone who wants to be accepted in an evangelical church who is unwilling to affirm these things. Of course, the Bible is inerrant. It is inspired. It is from God. This is the book that we have. But here's where things often start to go wrong. Whether it is churches, pastors, or individual Christians, we often take 
what the Bible says about its own origin and its inerrancy, its infallibility, and then proceed to do things that completely ignore the implications of those doctrines. We act like it's not even true, functionally. And there are a lot of reasons why this might take place, but regardless of why, it happens. And we need to make sure that we don't let this happen to us. We need to make sure that as individuals, we're not just affirming that the Bible is true, but that we're acting like it in the ways that it then plays out from there. And the same thing is true for us as a church. We need to make sure that we are doing ministry biblically by realizing the implications of these truths. So we continue in our list here of how to view the Bible with some implications of biblical inspiration and inerrancy. Um, Namely, first of all, that it is authoritative. It is authoritative. It has authority. It is full of authority. It is completely in authority over us as God's creatures, as God's people, as God's church. We must do what the Bible says. The Bible is full of commands to us, things that we should obey, things that we should reject, things that we should believe, and so on. And of course, implicit in the idea of God as creator speaking to his creatures is what? He's the one who gets to tell us what to do. When the Bible speaks, it speaks with 100% authority. And this has been true from the Old Testament all the way through the New. For example, in the Old Testament, as the book of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is what happened. If you didn't do what the law said, there was a punishment because God is in charge. And this wasn't just for common people. Even the one most in charge in the nation, the king of Israel, was to submit to the authority of God's word. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Why? To make sure that he gets it right. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. God wanted to make sure that even the one in charge of the nation, the highest ranking, the most authoritative individual was in submission to him. Again, this is the right place for us, in submission to God's word. And then in the New Testament, it is of course expected that believers will take God's word and do exactly what it says. Jesus says, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make people that follow me and teach them to do everything that I command. It's a lot of authority. Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Listen to this, let no one disregard you. Everyone in the church, everyone that is a Christian must do what the Bible tells us to do. Now, unfortunately, some Christians and really probably um, all Christians at some points, but nonetheless, some Christians and some churches pretend like certain passages basically don't exist. They don't submit to biblical authority. For example, in the realm of the structure and requirements and qualifications for church leadership, you will find solo pastors unaccountable to other elders in their church. You will find elders who are not qualified to serve because they're not able to teach. They are just good at certain other things. Uh, You may find that the church is led not by elders and pastors who have met the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but by deacons. 
godly men, to be sure, we would hope, and yet not what God has assigned to be the ones who are the governing body of the church. Or another way this happens is that church discipline is simply ignored or perhaps worse, castigated as judgmental and legalistic. We are merciful here. We just overlook sin. We don't confront sin at all and we definitely, definitely don't bring someone before the church if they're unwilling to repent. These are the kinds of things that the church does when it doesn't want to submit to the authority that God has given you know we've got our better way of doing this if we practice church discipline who will want to come you know if we set these high requirements for church leadership how are we going to find people like that where will we do that we're not going to have enough leaders so let's just put some people in there because we got to have somebody these are some of the reasons people do this On the other side of this, you know that someone is believing the Bible and trusting the Bible when they do willingly submit to God's authority as laid out in it. In particular, when it doesn't necessarily make sense to them as the way that they might do it. You may remember the story in the Old Testament uh, during the time of Elijah and Elisha about a man named Naaman, the Syrian. You remember him? The commander. And he had leprosy. And he was told, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. And what did he say? (laughs) We've got better rivers back home than that. I mean, that is a ridiculous thing to ask me to do. And of course, he was encouraged. He said by his his, uh, assistant, you know, if you were asked to do some great thing, wouldn't you do it? Well, yeah, I guess that's true. And he humbled himself underneath that instruction. And guess what happened? He was cleansed from his leprosy. Here's a man that entrusted himself underneath the word of God. Reluctantly at first, and yet nonetheless, he did it. This is the kind of thing that we have to do in the Bible when we're dealing with biblical authority. It may not make sense to us. It may not be what we would pick. And yet we trust God's ways to carry out his, his desired ends. We don't say, well, this is going to be more effective. We let God take care of that. And we follow the instruction in Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We tend to think naturally that we know best, but submitting to the authority of Scripture means that we believe it even over our own evaluation of things, even when it doesn't make sense to us at first or for a long time. We trust that God knows best and we submit to his authority. So if we want to do ministry biblically, we submit to God's word by always following his commands. Now, in addition to being authoritative, another place that people commonly go wrong is missing out on this point, that it is sufficient. God's word is sufficient or it is enough. 2 Timothy 3, 17 says that the scripture is not only profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, but it has this result, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for some good works, Equipped for partial good works? No, of course. What does it say? Equipped for every good work. The implication is that if you have the Bible, you can do everything you need to do in serving the Lord. Everything. And so what does it mean that the Bible is enough? Well, broadly speaking, it means that it's enough to accomplish all the goals that God has given to the church. Now, it's important that we step back and acknowledge some caveats to that that just make common sense. One of these would be that if you don't understand language then you're not going to understand the Bible. So if you can't speak, 
then you're not going to be able, like if you can't speak in here, you're not going to be able to understand the Bible. Um, another thing would be that cultural and historical backgrounds and things like that can be helpful in actually understanding the meaning of the scripture. So this is not to say that there aren't things involved in getting to the point of scripture and understanding it. But what it means is that if we understand the Bible and we do what it says, then God requires no more of us than that. And that that is enough for us to do faithful ministry. Anything else is just icing on the cake. Anything else is just gravy. Any other extra food analogy that you want to use. Many of the things that seem to go beyond scripture and its sufficiency are really just the various ways that we're trying to, uh, we are obeying scripture, but we're trying to find the best way to practice that without overlooking the commands that constrain us. So scripture is enough to accomplish the goals that God has given to the church. It's enough to do also what pleases God. I mentioned last week that uh, alongside those other four goals, everything we do should be striving to please God rather than men. And so it is too with obeying the Bible. If we have the scripture, then all we need to please God is to do what it says. If this is the ultimate goal of ministry to please God, then all that matters is to please God. And everything else is just about what might be the wisest way to do things. But if we do what the Bible says according to a proper understanding, then we will be pleasing to God. So then what do we make about the various practices that go beyond this? You know, if all we need is the Bible, then why do we, uh, you know, why do we use email as a church to send out things? I thought we just needed the Bible. Why do we have a place that we meet together? All we need is the Bible. Well, of course, these are all just ways that we are working out the practices that are prescribed in the Bible. Of course, there are other things that might be helpful to know to be able to do good works. How can we help somebody find a job? How can we decide and make decisions about education? How can we plan the, the way that we spend our time and things like that? Um, all of these are ways that we can learn from various places about particular, about information that might be useful. But the point is that it's all under the authority, the umbrella of the authority of Scripture. And so we might look for advice or information about these things, but we are simply just trying to figure out the best way to carry out the Scripture. People, unfortunately, though, reject the sufficiency of the Bible. They act like the Bible is not enough to accomplish God's intended purposes for the church. Um, how do they do this? Well, just a few ways. Um, sometimes we think we need something above and beyond the Bible for guidance and direction. That the Bible is not enough, and so God has to tell me something beyond that. I won't know what God wants me to do unless he reveals this outside of Scripture. People look for this. Um, sometimes we think that we need something more than Scripture and the gospel to appeal to non-Christian people for salvation. And we think that this is not enough. There has to be something else or else they won't want to come or they won't want to listen or they won't want to believe. And sometimes we think we need something more than the Bible for fixing our real problems. You know, the real ones, like not the ones like, yes, I should be kind and I should be patient, but the real one, you know, the real problems. And uh, so we look elsewhere. We just say, you know, the Bible is good as far as it goes, but if I really want to get deep into my soul or if I want to address my problems, you know, the Bible is just not good enough. The Bible is just not good enough. Um, 
you know, this is really unfortunate because this is, uh, this happens for many reasons. Um, sometimes we don't like what the Bible says about our souls. We don't like what the Bible says about our condition. And we say, yeah, I know I need to fix my problem, but not that way. Uh, I want to change my circumstances. I don't want to know how to endure through those circumstances. Um, I'm, I'm very anxious all the time. And I don't, you know, the Bible gives these commands to not be anxious, but I just, it's hard. And I want something else that's going to just take that away. And so we think we have these problems that the Bible can't deal with. But the Bible is enough. The Bible is sufficient. So when it comes to sufficiency, the point is this. It is true that the Bible does not possess every bit of information that might be beneficial to us in any possible way. Okay? The Bible is not going to tell you recipes for particular medications that might make you feel better. It's not going to give you instructions for how to repair your car and things like that. These are obvious, but these are ways that uh, they might be very helpful and beneficial in a certain sense. And yet, if we never have those other things, we can still do exactly what God wants us to do. We can please him. We can walk with joy because the Bible is sufficient, regardless of whatever else we're able to come to understand. So the Bible is sufficient, and two things about this need to remain true in our minds. First of all, that the Bible has the authority to evaluate all the other pieces of information. The Bible has the authority to evaluate all those other pieces of information so that if we look elsewhere, the Bible still trumps anything that disagrees with it. And then on the other side, that the Bible contains all that we need to do, all that, uh, excuse me, all we need in order to do what God requires of us, which is our goal as his creatures. It contains all that we need to do what God requires of us. So then we're never missing out on something because we don't know something that is outside of Scripture. We always have what we need to relate to our Creator in the way that He has designed us. And we need to be cautious when we go outside of the Bible to look for things that are practical ways to implement certain things or wisdom or advice uh, or information. We need to be very careful that we test everything by the Scripture and let it have the authority that it claims to have. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The Bible is sufficient. It is enough. It's authoritative, it's sufficient, but it's also, by virtue of being God's very word, it is clear. It is clear. The Bible has clarity. Or what sometimes people call perspicuity, which is not necessarily a very perspicuous word, is it? It's not the easiest word to understand, perspicuity, but nonetheless, that's the technical word for the Bible's clarity. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 through 13, for this commandment which I command you today, speaking to Israel, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Now we know very obviously that the law uh, was not something that anyone actually was able to keep. But that's because of the, the hardness of heart and the sinful nature of man. It's not because the commands themselves could not be understood. And that's the point that Moses is making here. It's not too difficult. It's right here. You can hear it. You can grasp it. The words are clear. This is not complicated. But often people will take a passage or take a section or take the Bible as a whole and say, you know, this is just too hard to understand. 
It just can't be understood. Because after all, I mean, God is not like us. We're humans and we're finite and God is infinite. So how can we possibly understand him? Well, it's true that God is not able to be comprehended in the sense of completely understanding everything there could possibly be to know about him. We will never be able to exhaust that because of God's being infinite. And yet we can understand God accurately and this is in no small part because God as infinite all-powerful creator is perfectly able to communicate with his creatures in a way that we can understand God can make himself clear and he has made himself understandable in the pages of scripture but people don't like to hear that a lot of times it's very easy to say well God you know he this is complicated we can't understand that this is difficult to uh, this is difficult to interpret and we do this very often when certain doctrines are embarrassing to us you know I don't really think the Bible is clear on that point it's kind of murky you know or when we don't want to obey what a Bible said what a passage of the Bible says it's very clear what it means we just don't like it we don't want to do what it says but the Bible is very clear. God makes himself clear and understandable. So clarity means this. Fundamentally, that the Bible can be understood and it can be understand, understood accurately and correctly by human beings. Now, just a few uh, caveats with this. It, it doesn't mean that every interpretation is correct or valid. Not everybody gets it right, everything they say about the Bible. It doesn't mean that every face value first reading is the correct reading. We should not expect to go to the Bible, look at it one time and say, yep, I get that perfectly, never have to think about that again. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul told Timothy that he had to be diligent to understand the word of truth properly. It doesn't mean that we'll understand every passage and every truth easily. It just means that it can be understood um, this doesn't mean that people will not disagree on meaning. The Bible can be difficult at times. Sometimes the difficulty is not with understanding, but with wanting to do what it says. But other times, there are a variety of reasons for this. On certain issues, there are many, many pieces of the puzzle that you have to put together. For example, on doctrines regarding eschatology, the end times, and the relationship of Israel and the church and things like this, there is a lot involved in that. It's not surprising that people would not agree on those particular things because there are a lot of pieces to put together. And so it takes a lot, a lot of work. It's not surprising sometimes that people will disagree on things. Other times, people have presuppositions that they are unwilling to change. Or that there would be a great cost to change. So they're very hesitant to change what they believe. And therefore they will not end up being open to being uh, shown a different understanding of scripture that may actually be correct. And we need to make sure that we're humble when, when people bring something to us and say, are you sure you're getting that passage right? That we go back to the text and we make sure that we're not just bringing our own idea about it into the text. But rather our idea is being drawn from the text. All of these things tell us that we can get the meaning wrong, but the Bible does have a right meaning and it can be known. So don't listen to people who say the Bible is just too hard to understand. Don't listen to people that say, well, that's just your interpretation. 
Well, it might be your interpretation, but it's not as if we have all these valid interpretations or as if there's not a correct one. Your interpretation may be wrong. You need to be open to that. But it's possible to have a right one. And people with a biblical view of the Bible aren't just going to write off a disagreement as just your interpretation without actually providing one that they think is correct. The Bible is clear and we should be able to understand it. One more note with this, by the way, just because it's clear and understandable, it doesn't mean that we will be able to understand everything about the how, the how, in other words, how does God do certain things? Um, How does God, by his voice, create things? How is he able to do that? We don't have that ability. How do the mechanics of that function? Well, God can do things we can't, but we don't have that ability, so it doesn't make sense to us. Um, How did Jesus turn a few fish and loaves into enough to feed 5,000 people? We only know that he did it. We don't know how. What did it look like? What were the pieces looking like as they were being broken apart? That's kind of behind the curtain, and we don't get to see that. It would be really amazing to see that. But how did that actually work? We don't really know. How did the resurrection work? These are the kinds of things that we don't know how. But just because we don't know how they work doesn't mean that it can't be said that that they worked. That they happened. So when we talk about scripture being clear, it doesn't mean we'll have all the answers to all of our questions from the Bible about the mechanics of every single thing. But it does mean that what it tells us is able to be understood. The scripture is clear. It has clarity. And then the next thing to understand about it is it is relevant. It is relevant. Very, very relevant. 2 Timothy 3.15, right here. What does the scripture do? The sacred writings, the Old Testament, which many people just write off as if it's less important somehow. The sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. If you know the Old Testament, this is going to help you to look at Jesus Christ and say, that's the guy. And I need to respond to him, not by works, but by faith alone. Salvation is through him. Psalm 19 The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so on. Psalm 119, verse 97, excuse me, 99, the psalmist says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. We get understanding from the Bible that is supernatural. Joshua 1.8 says, if you meditate on the book of the law day and night then you will make your way prosperous and have good success the bible is extremely extremely relevant if you have any remaining doubt about how the bible brings us good just read the first nine chapters of proverbs and you'll see all of those promises that are there the bible is critical for us and it's just vital because there are a lot of bad ideas out there a lot of wrong ways to live a lot of bad advice a lot of things that will get us in trouble a lot of bad examples a lot of bad opportunities and temptations how do we know how to identify those how do we know how to respond to them how do we know how to think about those and how do we know how we should think instead of believing those things do we just fall back on cultural traditions you know you look around you're like i don't like the way our country's going let's go back to what it was 50 years ago is that the same thing as what god wants from us Do we do just the opposite of whatever seems crazy and out there to us? The unbelieving world can do that, but what do we need to do? We need to do what God says is true. It is immensely relevant. 
And yet, for many life situations, it just never seems to cross people's mind that the Bible might think about or speak about something. And this often happened in the Bible. Paul is writing to the Corinthians or the Romans, and he makes a point and he says, do you not know? Haven't you thought about this? Don't you know that there's a connection between the theology you know and the life that you're living and the choices that you're making? But you haven't thought about this. Jesus constantly is asking people, have you not read? And the assumption is you can understand the Bible and that the Bible has bearing upon these decisions that you're making, but they're not connecting those dots. And this, unfortunately, is the way that we live a lot of our lives. We just think that the Bible has to do with maybe some things we do at church, maybe some way that we worship, and maybe some very direct commands. And then we just walk off and we just forget about it. And we look elsewhere for our advice and for our wisdom and our how-tos on everything. The Bible is relevant in so many areas of our life. And the more you know the Bible and the more you think about it, the more you meditate on it, the more you're going to see those connections. The more you're going to understand just how relevant it is, how it protects you, how it cares for you, how it encourages you. It gives you joy. It makes you useful to be able to minister to other people. It's extremely, extremely relevant. And the fact that it's old really doesn't write off any of those things. This is the way that people think about the Bible as well, unfortunately. They think it's old, therefore it's no longer relevant. One of my um, favorite childhood pieces of technology was the, uh, the little VHS tape rewinder. Anyone else have one of those? You know, and the, the VHS player and recorder was too slow to rewind it. But if you got the rewinder, it would do it in, you know, maybe 30 seconds or a minute. This two-hour long video is just an amazing technology. Now, of course, we don't have to deal with that now because you can just start back on a disc or a digital thing from the beginning. But back then, you had to rewind the tape before you took it back to the video store or they would charge you to rewind it. So this is an amazing example of technology. Now, it would be basically worthless for almost anybody. And people view the Bible this way. They say it's old, it's outdated. We have new things, we have technology, we have new ideas. Why do we need that old book? It's old, therefore it must be irrelevant. And this is the poisonous way of thinking of our age, that old is bad and new is good. But the Bible is not any less relevant because it was written a long time ago. On the contrary, because it was written by God, it is always, always relevant always relevant and we need to do our best to make sure that we not only believe this and seek it ourselves but also where we have opportunity that we're showing other people where it's relevant as well one more sub point on this that's a little bit separate is it is necessary it is necessary the bible is not just relevant it is necessary jesus quoted the book of deuteronomy quoted moses and said man shall not live by bread alone but by what Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is our necessary food. Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4. It is the tool that God uses to tell us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. 1 Timothy 3.14. If we want to know what we ought to do in the church, we have to study the scriptures. And on top of this, the Bible shows us what should be our priorities. The subjects that the Bible addresses are not always the ones that we would choose to address and to think are important. A lot of times we see the Bible as merely an answer book. But it's important to understand that the Bible is also a question book in this sense. It doesn't just tell us the answers to the questions that we're asking. It also tells us the questions that we should be asking 
It doesn't always give us the answers that we want because the Bible tells us those are the things that are maybe less important. And it reorients what we even think is important in the first place. And so when we come to scripture, we shouldn't just be saying, what does the Bible say about this? Or what does the Bible say about this subject? We need to be careful that we don't just follow along and only study where it seems pertinent to us. Instead, we study where the Bible says that it's pertinent, which means that we need to learn the whole thing and then apply as we have opportunity. Now, if uh, you want more on any of these particular subjects, uh, there is a particularly good resource for you. And actually, I've brought several copies to, uh, for you, to make this easy for you to pick up. I don't normally do this. But this particular book covers a lot of this material. It's called Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. Taking God at His Word. And there are several copies that are on the blue table as you walk out toward the front door. Uh, I would love to see none of those copies left when I leave here. So if you think you'll read that in a cu- within the next couple of months or so, please feel free to grab one and don't be selfless and let someone else have it. Just grab one and, and uh, get to reading. So if you want more on those particular points and a lot more of what I've talked about, that would be a great resource uh, to be able to study that in depth. But I do want to just briefly run through a few ways now to use this information. And this will be somewhat rapid, so I apologize, but I want to just talk about these things. Many will be straightforward, but perhaps there will be one or two that you haven't thought about. So I'd just encourage you to write them down as I go, and then to think about how you need to continue or to grow in your practices of these things. How you should use the Bible. Not just how you should view the Bible, but how you should use it. First of all, preach it. Preach it. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Obviously, this is not everyone's role, but it is foundational for ministry to be happening. And if it's not happening, you won't be able to do faithful ministry. Ephesians 4.12 says that teachers and pastors are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Simple. No faithful word ministry. The saints are ill-equipped for all other ministry. There's no way around it. Secondly, listen to it. Listen to it. 2 Timothy 4, the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Does that not describe the marketplace for church and preaching today? There is a demand for people to be told things that they want to hear. Instead, we are to listen to sound doctrine to the point where sometimes it might be an act of endurance. Hopefully not because it's boring, although I apologize if it ever is, but because it challenges us and it confronts us and it doesn't necessarily always talk about exactly what we want to hear in the way that we want to hear it. So we need to listen to it anyway. Listen to the word of God. Thirdly, insist upon it. Insist upon it. Lots of people insist upon not having the Bible. They say, we're not going to put up with sound doctrine. But what you need to do is make sure that you insist upon it. Don't ever let someone stand up here and preach something that is other than the Bible. If someone tries to neglect the Bible or misuse it or replace it, then they should be quickly rejected. As Paul said in Galatians 1, if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel different than what I preached to you, let that person be accursed. You need to insist that the Bible is taught and never stand for compromise on that point. Number four, learn it. Learn it. 
You need to learn the Bible. Of course, we are told that uh, Jesus said that we are to teach, that disciples are to be taught to do all that Jesus commanded. What's the implication of that? Not just that there's a teacher, but that the people who are being taught should learn. Okay, that's not just teaching to, uh, you know, completely blank stares and nobody actually listening or anything like that, like some teachers may feel like in certain places, but people are to learn the Bible. What are you doing to learn the Bible? How can you learn the Bible? Basically, it starts with listening to what you're being taught or what you're reading and to be careful to understand it, understand it rightly, educate yourself with the word of God. Number five, think about it. Think about the Bible. What do you think about during the day? What do you think about most of the time? The Bible tells us in Psalm 1 verse 2 that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he does what? Meditates day and night. Thinks about the Bible as often as he can. That is the way we are to treat it. We don't just learn it here and then when noon on Sunday comes, we shut that off until sometime later in the week or until the next time we show up. We don't just read the Bible in the morning and then forget about it the rest of the day. We think about the Bible often as we have opportunity and we try to do things to help ourselves to meditate upon it. Now, with both of these things, by the way, as far as learning it and meditating upon it, this would then imply that you can read it, not just that you listen here, but that you read it and that you memorize it. These are great ways to make sure that you're learning the Bible and thinking about the Bible. Read the Bible and memorize it. Number six, talk about it. Talk about it. Deuteronomy 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You should be swimming in the word of God as the conversation that takes place. It should frame everything. So talk about the Bible, not just in your family, but among everybody that you can talk about it. Ephesians 4.14, speaking the truth in love. Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another. We talk about it and we use it to encourage and exhort one another. Number seven, consider the Bible. Consider it. Always think about it in line with everything that you do. Some of you have a person that's in your life that's been very influential to the point where when you think about a decision, you think, what would that person do? What would that person want me to do? What would that person tell me to do? Well, wouldn't it be great if we thought about that with regard to the word of God? What does the Bible tell me to do? What would God want me to do? And the wonderful thing is we don't have to speculate because it's all in the Bible. And if it's not there, then we know that he has not prescribed it for us. But we do have to have our minds renewed. Romans 12, 2, the only way to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable is perfect, is to do what? To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to start to think according to what God has said. And so we ask with every decision, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Is this biblical? Does the Bible say this? And we let that be the grid through which all our thoughts and actions are filtered. Consider the Bible. Number eight, trust it. Trust it. Proverbs 3, 5 and 8, uh, uh, excuse me, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust 
God's word at every point. Trust that it can do what it can do. Believe that it is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. Believe that it is enough to do the work that God has given to do. And don't think that you have to add to it. And certainly don't think that you can take away from it. Trust the Bible. Number nine, obey it. Obey the Bible. Don't be, as James 1 describes, just a hearer of the word and not a doer. James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Jesus talked about those who built their house on the sand versus the house on the rock. And the difference was both people listened to his words, but only one did what he said. Matthew 7. So we need to obey the Bible. Number 10, prioritize it. Prioritize the Bible. We all have other things we could talk about, think about, or even help other people with. There are many needs that people have. But what do we need most of all? We need to know and believe and do what God has said. Sometimes we need to spend the time fixing that broken lawnmower. But a lot of the time, what we need is directly in God's word. But we don't prioritize those spiritual needs. Let's make sure that we prioritize what God's word prioritizes and that we do what he says. Number 11, pray the Bible, pray it. Daniel chapter nine, which we've recently studied, Daniel had an entire biblical theology in view, didn't he? He's just praying in light of the Bible, in the context of the Bible. And he used biblical language in his prayers, not because it's a magic trick, but because he is expressing to God things that God has said please him. When you pray according to the Bible, you know what else you're doing? You're praying for things that others in the body of Christ can pray along with you. You're not offering a prayer request and then someone says, hmm, I don't know if I can pray for that. Not sure if that's biblical. But when we pray according to the Bible, then we can pray together. So when you ask for prayer, make sure that you are asking for prayer according to the Bible and you're thinking about how the Bible relates to that. And when you pray yourself, keep in mind the things that are true about what God is like and what he has said, what he has said that he will do. Number 12, this almost goes without saying, the 12th and finally, spread it. Spread the word. Acts 9, those, excuse me, Acts 8, those who had been persecuted went about preaching the word. 1 Peter 2 says that we have been saved so that we will proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. We are to spread the word of God. Don't just keep it to yourself. Make sure that other people know it. And this is vital for us as we're doing ministry. Do you have a biblical view of the Bible? If so, let's use it biblically and let's honor God as we do this. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you've given us this word. Help us to carry out ministry with a biblical view of your very words. Thank you for them. And thank you for all that they do for us and mean for us. And may you be exalted as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen.